Josh uh, was forced to preach two weeks in a row. Uh, he had no problem with that, actually. He was uh, up for the task and was able to preach in the last portion of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. We'll be there again today. Um, and as Josh preached these last two weeks, we saw that he passed this man born blind. Right? We looked at this story last week. Jesus passes a man who was born blind. He's sitting at the gate of the temple. He's a beggar. His lot in life is that he is blind in utter darkness, and he is pleading at the temple gate for mercy. Mercy from his fellow man, but then Jesus sees him, and, and he takes notice of him. I love how Josh pointed this out in his sermon, that Jesus sees him. He actually looks upon him. This man who was born in darkness, years in darkness, is now a grown man and has known nothing but darkness in his life. He knows nothing else. And ultimately, where, where we ended up last week, where Josh took us last week, is that Jesus is the light of the world. He said this now twice, once back in chapter 8, verse 12, and now in chapter 9, verse 5, that he is the light of the world. And we pointed out how this is a big statement. It's a bold statement because there's messianic ties to it. When you go back to Isaiah and you talked about the, um, about the, the Christmas prophecy that we bring up so many times, right? Where the, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. When he makes the declaration that he is the light of the world, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the people who would be in the know, they know exactly what he is saying, which is why they get so upset, right? If any man were to make claims to be the Messiah, to be God himself, of course, that is a big, grave offense. He's making this bold statement that he is the Messiah, God, who has come to the rescue of his people, and that he, the light of the world, Christ himself, he gives sight to the blind. Those who have been born in utter darkness, not a darkness or a blindness that was merely self-inflicted, caused by us, caused by the mere actions of our sinful selves, but a state that we were born into. Do you realize that? It's not a darkness or a blindness that is just the result of our sinful actions, but because we have a sinful nature, that we were born into darkness, our actions flow out of the state in which we were born. The sinful actions that you and I do, our selfishness and sinfulness, our greediness, our pridefulness, our lust, all of it flows out of a state in which we were born, a state that needs to be redeemed, to be restored, to be made new. This was a blindness that from near, nearly the beginning, since the fall in chapter 3 of Genesis, it is the state of mankind, born in utter sin and darkness, blind with no hope, begging, pleading for the mercy of others and the mercy of God. As Josh pointed out last week, Jesus looks at this man and he sees him. He takes notice. 
Like the old hymn, it is well with my soul that Christ regarded his helpless estate. He looks at him and he has pity, has mercy on him, and he heals his blindness. Darkness overwhelmed by the one who is the light of the world. Praise be to God. That story is the story of every person in this room who has put their faith in Christ. That story is our story. That the light of the world has come and shone its light into my darkened heart, opened my eyes to behold the beauty of Christ, to confess and to reject my sin and my sinful past, to embrace and behold the beauty of Christ and the grace that he has poured out on us, And that that light has come into our darkened hearts and we are now able to see and behold him as the truth. The truth that will set us free from the bondage and the darkness of sin. Praise be to God that Christ, the light of the world, has come. Can't wait. That's part of the reason why I love Christmas. There's a big part of me that cannot stand Christmas and I hate saying that as a pastor. I, I, I can't, like, I used to dread. It's only in recent years that I've truly, like, started to get into, my wife was playing Christmas music this last week, like, in our house, and it, part of it was just, like, being sick and whatever, like, we needed some joy, we needed some, you know, and it just, and then the kids would not let, like, any decorations go up yet, like, it's way too early for that. But, like, for a long time, I didn't like it because I don't like what Christmas has become in our culture, Right? It's, it's presents, it's consumerism, it's just all the stuff and whatever. Like, it can, we can really get off track really quick. But the fact is, we are celebrating God come down, the light of the world, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who stepped into this dark world and made everything new. What a beautiful time to celebrate, especially especially over the last year or two, right? When there's darkness and hurt and pain and sickness all around us, there's chaos and discord and division everywhere you look. Everywhere you look, people are fighting. (laughs) But the light of the world has come. And it is such a joyous thing for us to step into this season here in a couple of weeks and celebrate that light. So this week, I want to take a look at the same basic text the text that we looked at last week, and I want to focus in a little more intently on the specific idea and doctrine of suffering. Because our understanding of suffering and the role of suffering, the role of affliction, what it's all about, is vitally important to shaping our theology, our view of who God is and who we are in him. If we don't get this right, we're not going to get a lot of things about God right. And so I want to look at it today. It was a a quote. I think I've actually shared it with you guys in the past by Charles Spurgeon. It says, men will never be great in theology until they are great in suffering. I think I've shared that with you in the past because there is a big part of our theology that hinges on our understanding about how a man could be born blind. And what's the purpose of it? What's the reason for it? What the disciples want to know what caused it. They have an assumption about what caused it. But to see 
Jesus' beautiful declaration in verse 3 where he says, it's not because of sin, but it's so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What a beautiful, beautiful purpose to this man's suffering. And so let's open up our uh, scriptures again today and let's look at John chapter uh, 9. Let's start in verse 1. We'll read through verse 11 again as we did last week. It says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made some mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. And others said, No, but it is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He said, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. Let's pray again before we uh, dig into this a little bit more today. Father, again, we come before you and we humble ourselves before your word. I pray for humility. I pray for a posture of desperation. I pray for a posture of openness. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes that we might see you. God, that we would have understanding of you and your ways, that we would have understanding in you and what you're doing, even in times of suffering and affliction. God, that we would trust you, that we would know that you are good and that you have purpose in everything, even our suffering. All glory and praise to you, Jesus. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've got multiple kids, <clears throat> or maybe kids who are close to their cousins or the neighbor kids, you've probably heard the phrase, that's not fair, right? If you've got multiple kids, small kids, or if you've been around small kids, that is a phrase that inevitably you will hear. Because kids, like all of us, like they have a sense of, of justice and fairness, I think that has been put in us by God. What is right and what is good, I think it's a reflection of the Imago Day in us. But boy, you get kids together and you ask them to share when there is one cookie left and they've got to share it with their siblings, a whole big fight can break out pretty quick over what's fair. One of the hardest things in all the world to understand one of the toughest questions to answer is why. Why is there suffering? Why is there hurt and pain and trials and sickness, calamity, destruction? To answer the age-old question, why do, good, why do bad things happen to 
good people. Because I think somehow, some way, we can wrap our brains around bad things happening to bad guys, scumbags who deserve it. But again, I think it's because we have some sense of justice or rightness or fairness in us. But I know we struggle, I struggle, a lot of people struggle with why. Why do bad things happen to seemingly innocent people? People who didn't seem to do anything to deserve it. Someone like a child. A small, innocent child. A child who maybe was born blind. Who grew to be a man still blind. Begging for mercy at the temple gate. It seems amazingly unfair. It seems anything but merciful. As we look at this text today, I want us to understand as the disciples question Jesus, and as Jesus, Jesus gives a beautiful answer, we see that there is purpose in something so um, baffling, like a child born blind. Even in that moment of affliction and suffering, God in his mercy has beautiful purpose. In verse 2, The disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I've always found that question baffling. So interesting. Like, like, just like their question isn't even, did someone sin? Did someone sin? Like, what caused this? Was it the result of sin? Their question assumes that it was sin. That... Like It points that there is a widespread thought in theology, both then and even now, that is tied to this. That sin causes suffering. And in, in a general sense, it does. In a general sense, we know from Genesis chapter 3, we know that sickness and decay and death, all of that stuff is a direct consequence of sin entering the world through our ancient parents. We, we understand that. We, we know that. But we must be careful because we can get caught up in a theology that is far more karmic than Christian. Far more works-based than based in the grace of God. We have to be careful in our understanding of suffering. And like I said, this is a, a theology and an understanding that was pervasive then and is even to this day. If you look down in our verses here, um, even beyond a little bit of what we read earlier, in verse 29, the Pharisees are trying to investigate and find out what happened to this man. Verse 29, it says, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, as for Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. Verse 30, the man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing! Exclamation point. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Since the world began, this has never happened. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, listen to this in verse 34. You were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. See, the Pharisees' assessment of the man. Who are you? You were born in utter sin. Your blindness is evidence of your sinfulness. 
This is why you were afflicted. This is why you were suffering. And again, this theology that was seemingly pervasive then is even to this day. That if you want the favor of God, you better do the right things. If you want the favor of God or the blessings from God, they are a result of my good deeds. My good deeds end up with rewards here and now, comfort and good in this life. And again, it's far more karmic than it is Christian. Last week, Josh talked about suffering being inevitable for all. That we know that as Christians, as believers, we are going to face times of suffering and trial. The Bible tells us that. It tells us not to be surprised, not to let it catch us off guard. First Peter speaks beautifully to suffering. Actually, in a few months, when we get to John chapter 16, Jesus, as he encourages his disciples before he leaves them, he tells them to expect persecution, trial, and hardship. He says in verse 33 of chapter 16, it says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That little in me is super important. In me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, he says. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Why is the question we want to answer? It's an appropriate question. Why, God? But I want to challenge you on what side of the equation you are focusing on. Is it why, as in what in the past has caused this affliction? What did I do to deserve this? Which calls into question the sovereignty of God? Or is your why is in the future purpose? God, what are you doing in this affliction? What are you doing in this suffering? What are you doing in this moment for the glory of your name? That is a beautiful and an uh, appropriate question to ask. And the beautiful thing about Scripture is we're not left in the darkness about the meaning of all of this. Right? We're not left in darkness about the meaning of darkness. We're not left in darkness uh, trying to figure out the why, the meaning of affliction, and the meaning of suffering, because our Scriptures have shown us beautifully the purpose in suffering. I love that Jesus hasn't left it up to us to put meaning behind it, that we have to come up with something on our own. But Christ Jesus, the light of the world, has given meaning to everything. Everything. Even the heartbreaking suffering, even the unfathomable suffering of children, the light of the world has given meaning. Verse 3 of our text as we looked at last week and again today, Jesus says it wasn't because of his sin or his parents' sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Some of your versions may say the glory of God might be displayed in this man who was born blind. It's hard for us to make sense of suffering. How does a good God, a good father, allow suffering to befall his children? And in some regards, like, I understand how it doesn't 
seem to make sense on the surface. But then on the other side of it, I go, suffering only makes sense in the light of Christ. It only makes sense when it's put in relationship to God. When you compare suffering and hurts allowed by and permitted by and even caused by a good and pure and holy God, it doesn't make sense to our earthly finite minds, but maybe it should. Because God who is holy and right and just, whose ways are higher than my ways, whose understanding is greater than my understanding, like a good, loving father disciplines his children Our God allows affliction and suffering to accomplish his good glory. And when we come into relationship with God, right, there's a a reorientation of our existence. I was once living for me and my selfishness. I was once living for me and my comforts. Christ grabbed a hold of me. He purchased me with his blood. My life is no longer my own, but now my life in every bit of my life is lived to the glory of Christ. It's hard for us to understand how God could allow or permit or even cause suffering and heartache. We see in Exodus chapter 4, God responding to Moses, right? When Moses is wrestling with his calling. When God is calling Moses to lead his people, he's wrestling with it. And God responds in verse 11. It says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The sovereignty of our God working and willing for his glory and ultimately our good. He is the potter, we are the clay, as it says in Isaiah chapter 64. This good God who is righteous and just. I love to decide what is good. I love to decide what is fair and what is just according to my ways. But as we said, his ways are higher. His ways are better. His ways are the most amazing. And we know that he restores. We know that he heals. We know that he fixes that which is broken. We know that he heals the eyes of the blind. And not just in a spiritual sense, but in a very real and literal sense. God can intervene and he can blow away any bit of brokenness. He can heal and restore. We've seen there are testimonies in this room of the goodness of God displayed in his healing, in his restoration, in the ways that he has healed broken relationships, healed sicknesses. He has put himself on display in the healing and the restoration. But I also know that there are countless stories in this room that also display the works of God in the middle of the suffering. Where you have seen things and have learned things about the nature and the goodness of God when you were in some of the darkest and lowest moments of your life. Some of you in this room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What a beautiful grace from God. 
times of suffering, right? Like we know that the healing puts him on display. We know that when he spit and made mud and put it on this guy's eyes and said, go wash, and he came back seeing, we know that that puts God on display. But even in the suffering, there is so much beautiful purpose. It's not that we're just waiting for the climax of an act, right? The waiting for the healing. But the, the healing and the relief of suffering today is not the ultimate goal for us in Christ Jesus. We know that this man who was born blind, who was then caused to see, we know that he died. He ultimately met his demise like we all will someday. It's because the ultimate goal for you and for me is not any bit of comfort or relief of suffering in this life. But we were born in our darkness, and he gave sight to us so that we might see and behold him and one day stand face to face with our God. That's the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate, ultimate realization of all of this. And when that's the goal, all of this, the good, the bad, the ugly, the suffering, the affliction, whatever it is, all takes on more beautiful purpose. Because it's moving us and shaping us, perfecting us, so that one day we will endure and we will see him face to face. The ultimate goal of all of this is when we behold him and see him, when he welcomes us into our eternal rest where there is no suffering or pain, when he will wipe away every tear from your eye, where sin is no more, where hurt is no more, where death is no more. Because he is a faithful God. He is a faithful God. I think our lack of understanding is because we have a faulty or a limited view of discipline. Even like in my own natural state. Have you ever disciplined your kids and halfway through the discipline you're like, oh my gosh, I am all about me right now. This is not about them. Anybody? Okay, please, like join me. Don't let me just confess my broken fatherhood here in front of you all. There are some times where I discipline my kids and I actually end up having to apologize to them because it was just me frustrated with them and I wanted them out of my hair versus me in a loving, merciful fashion disciplining them for their good and their growth. Anybody else? Okay, good. Thank you. A lot of times we think of discipline as just punishment for wrongdoing, which that's part of it sometimes. You disobey, go have a time out. But a good, loving father disciplines his children in a beautiful, more uh, uh, purer sense. It's not just punishment for doing wrong. It's not just go have a time out because you've disobeyed. There's structure and guardrails. It's telling them no, that they can't have chocolate cake at 7 a.m. And they look at you and you say, oh, you're so mean. You won't let me have the good stuff. No, it's because I know better than you. 
It's because I'm wiser than you. It's because you're six and I'm in my 40s and I've done some living. We don't just, how many of you in this room, you just hand your kids everything they ever want? How horrible of a parent would we be? If they never experienced any hardship or work or never had to do chores or, or cut the grass or go pick up after the dog outside. How horrible of a parent would we be if we didn't let them struggle and work through some of their stuff sometimes? If we just handed everything to them and they experienced no pushback or rub or affliction or suffering or hard work. We don't see suffering as this beautiful, loving discipline from a loving father. We see it as karmic punishment or cruel indifference that he doesn't care. And it's the furthest thing from the truth. I know people in this room, I know people in our church that are really struggling with something. And some of you, I've heard it uttered that just feel like God doesn't care. Or that he's just being cruel, but I promise you, in the goodness of God, he is a good father who loves and cares and has not left you. And he's walking with you every step of the way. Because scripture tells me so. Hebrews chapter 12 points to God's beautiful discipline of his children. But it's not this karmic punishment or this cruel indifference, but God is treating us as kids, as sons. Verse 7, it says, for, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respect them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as it seems best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We have to understand suffering and trials. we got to get this right to endure well because he is working. He is showing us things about himself and about us and about the blessed hope, the reward that awaits us. Being a Christian and experiencing the goodness of God is not about your best life now. It is not about ease and comfort. It's not about everything going according to plan all the time. But God in his mercy allows us to be afflicted so that we are disciplined, that we have an understanding, a deeper understanding, an understanding that we would not get if we did not experience it. How many of you like, are like me in this room? That if everything is going awesome, chances are you're going to be full of yourself and wander off way faster than if you're laid out sick for a week or two. <laughs> like, 
thank you. I like I know like if everything was rosy all the time, I would be off doing my own thing because everything would be awesome. But God in his mercy allows me to be afflicted, allows me to suffer sometimes, and it causes me to cling to my Lord. What a beautiful grace of God. What a beautiful grace of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's read this beautiful passage together. Start at verse 7. It says, but we have this treasure, right? Jesus, we've got Jesus. We've got his gospel in these jars of clay, right? We're simple. We're not fancy. We're susceptible to damage. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Anybody remember that song that had all these words in it? Was it I'm trading my sorrows? Remember that? Oh, it's like youth camp all over again. Struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Christ may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Jump down to verse 16. It says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Praise Jesus for this light momentary affliction is prepping us, preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If we start to understand the purpose of suffering, the works of God being displayed, not only in the healing, but also in the suffering, the discipline of God would be so sweet to our souls, and we would endure. Actually, maybe we would find joy in the trials, as James tells us, right? Consider it joy when you're faced with trials of many kinds. And like I said, What's beautiful about the scriptures is we're not left to try to find the meaning in the suffering, but our text beautifully tells us it's not some karmic punishment. It's not some cruel indifference. But God, in his mercy, in his plans, put his beautiful work on display in his children. Us Christians, we like to say things sometimes, and I don't know if we understand the full weight of it. Lots of times we like to use the phrase like, um, in, in our weakness, he is strong, right? Might have that on a coffee cup. It seems like a real coffee cup kind of verse. It is so true that in our weakness... God is made strong. God is made manifest in our weakness. You see, Paul talk about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, right? When he's talking about the thorn in his flesh. Verse 7, it says, So to keep me from being conceited, 
because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given in my flesh, given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He pleads three times with the Lord that it should leave him. And Jesus wasn't going to take it away. He was just going to say, you know what? My grace is bigger. It's sufficient. It is full. It is enough to sustain you. To have the mindset of Paul to be content with weakness and hardship and calamities. That this new life in Christ Jesus comes with a new purpose that Everything is about him. Everything is about his glory. Everything is now about displaying the works of Christ, both the hardship and the good times. It's all about Christ. And if we know from Scripture, if we know from Paul's writings that in my weakness, God is made strong. In my weakness, God manifests himself in such beautiful ways If that, in fact, is true, that if my weakness and my struggle brings about the glory of God and that it's made manifest to myself and the world, shouldn't my prayer be that God would exploit my weaknesses for the glory of his name? What a bold and mature prayer that God would make me weak, would keep me weak if it means greater glories to him. But we don't. I don't. Because I care too much about the comfort and peace in this life instead of being an instrument of God for the glory of his name. As we wrap up this morning, I want us to get our suffering right. I want us to take heart and know the goodness of God. I don't want us to miss the beautiful purpose, the beautiful discipline, the beautiful work that he is doing to display his glory in us, even in those times of suffering. Maybe you're in this place today, and maybe you have been struggling with something. Maybe there's been something that has been nagging you. Maybe there's something that you're... uh, in, in, in your body, maybe maybe you're, it's something, a physical need, maybe it's something that you've just been enduring for years and years and years, and maybe there's no answers. And you're weary. Hold fast. Hold fast. Don't give up. Your Father is good. He is not indifferent towards you. He is not um, cruel. He is not punishing you. He loves you. Endure.
Yes, ask him for the healing. Yes, ask him to take it away. But if he doesn't understand that he is working and willing to put his glory on display in you. I'm not going to pretend to understand the struggle. But I do know that God is faithful. It's my prayer this morning that you would know that and that you would trust that. This morning, let's just take a moment and let's go to our God in prayer together. Just in your seats where you're at, maybe bow your head and close your eyes. If you have a need in this place, bring before God right now. Maybe you're something in your body, maybe in your physical state, maybe it's a sin struggle, maybe it's just something that you haven't been experiencing freedom, something that you're just still struggling with every day. Maybe there's hurt in a relationship, whatever it is, just bring it before God right now and just ask him for a touch, ask him for a healing, ask him for um, restoration and redemption in that situation right now. Bring it before him. Thank you, God. shift gears and just maybe ask let's ask God to open our eyes to his purpose in our sufferings that we wouldn't be so resistant that we wouldn't be so earth minded that our eyes wouldn't be so earth bound but that they would be fixed on Christ in his purpose, that we would love his glory, that we would love his will done in our lives, even if it means my own suffering. Let us be bold with that prayer, that we would see the goodness of God even in the suffering, that he is working and willing for his glory and ultimately for our maturity, that we would endure that one day we would stand before him face to face and he would say, well done. Father, in your mercy today, your mercy today, God, for those in this place that are that are in need God, we bring those needs before you. We lay them at your feet. And God, we ask for healing. We ask for a touch. We ask for you to restore and redeem our situations, God. 
We do. We bring them before you. You call us to. You tell us to to bring supplications before you. We bring them to you, God, and we ask for a touch from you, just as you did this man at the temple gate. Some of us in this room, maybe this is not the first time we've prayed that prayer, but God, we've been wrestling with something. We've been afflicted. We've been in suffering. Whatever it's been, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see what you're doing in this situation, that we would surrender and submit to you again and know that you are good, that you are a good father that disciplines, not just punishes for wrongdoing, but you are a good father that walks through us in these times for the glory of your name and for the maturing of our souls. Help us to trust you, O oh God. Help us to trust you today, O oh God. Bring glory to your name. Use our weakness. Use our brokenness. Exploit my weakness, God, for the glory of your name. Let us be instruments used by you. We thank you. We praise you. Be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, let's stand and let's sing together before we go.